This is Inside the Writer's Head with Kurt Dynan, the Library Foundation of Cincinnati and Hamilton County's 2016-2017 Writer-in-Residence. The Library Foundation's Writer-in-Residence program promotes writing, literacy, and creativity in our community, all while furthering the library's mission of connecting people with the world of ideas and information. Our podcast starts now. Hi, this is Kirk Dynan, the Cincinnati Public Library's Writer-in-Residence with another episode of Inside the Writer's Head. Today I'll be talking with Cincinnati native Jim Spaeth, author of Up, Up, and Astray, memoir of an airline bachelor during the golden age of air travel. Jim spent four decades in the airline industry before deciding to write this memoir of his adventures. Today we're going to recount some of his experiences, talk about memoir writing, and the business of self-publishing. Welcome, Jim. Well, thanks, Kurt, and thanks for reading my book. Yeah, absolutely. It was great. It was it was a lot of fun. So let's get right to it. You're you're 77 years old and you just published your first book. Isn't this the time you're supposed to be like relaxing and yelling at kids to get off your lawn? Like <laughs> why why do you decide now uh, was the time to write this memoir? Well, I'm certainly not going to live forever, and I can see the light at the tunnel getting larger and larger, not smaller. I've told many stories about the times I had with TWA, which were probably the 10 most exciting years of my life. And from time to time, I took notes, and I figured it was time to go ahead and write the memoir. And starting at my childhood, but basically most of it is regarding those wonderful years that I lived from 1964 to 1974. Well, you mentioned like having notes and stuff. The, I mean, the book covers in great detail incidents and people and places you experienced over those years. I mean, those things took place 50 years ago. So how in the world did you remember all of those details? Like, did you have a journal? Do you just have a great memory? I, I have to congratulate my memory for helping me out <laughs> on a lot of those. Uh, sometimes a sequence I, I didn't have down pat, but I did have some things that helped me. Number one, I had visas in my old passports. Oh. Uh, that was a big help. Uh, I have a friend, uh, John Proctor in Idaho, who is basically a TWA historian. I needed the date for our first 747 inaugural flight from Los Angeles to London. He gave it to me. I needed the date for the first inaugural. I flew a 1011 from L.A. to Cincinnati. He gave it to me. So those things helped out, plus the Internet. <laughs> One strange little story. I'd leave a bar late at night in Southern California where I lived at this time. I was an in-flight service director of customer service. And on my way home, I would decide to stop off at Jack in the Box at the drive-thru and get a huge hamburger. And I couldn't remember the name of it. I looked at their menus uh, on the Internet, and obviously over the time that, that hamburger changed its name. But by golly, after Googling enough, Doing enough of research on the Internet, I found it, and I remembered it then, the Jumbo Jack. So it was a combination of all those. You started as a TW, you started at TWA as a ticket counter agent and then as a sales rep and finally as a director of customer service um, as a 747 supervisor, right? I mean, that took you all over the world. You refer to that time um, in the title of the book and, and now as the golden age of air travel. Why is that? Oh, boy, I, I feel sorry for those who, who weren't adults to live through that. Some people deny that there was such a golden age, and they say the fares were higher. Yeah, I guess 
you could say that, uh, but I could also say that the fares, the full fares for first class are higher now than they were back then, allowing for inflation. But the, the, the captivating thing about the golden age is we were going from propeller-driven planes to jet planes. So everything had been simple when I started with TWA. We had four fares, propeller first class, propeller coach, jet first class, jet coach. If you couldn't make your flight, no problem. You get your money back. There were no penalties if you had to make changes. Everything was so simple back then. It was such a pleasure to fly because people were of a culture back then where it was almost required to dress up nicely to get on a plane. It was an adventure. And you had leg room. You had hot meals. Believe it or not, TWA offered a hot meal on a 90-minute flight between Cincinnati and New York. Well, and what surprises me, and I forget about this, is you used to be able to smoke on airplanes, right? I mean, you could smoke everywhere, but it comes up in the book, and I and I yeah. and I just started laughing. I was like, "That's right." I mean, you're you're completely trapped in this tube flying through the sky, and people, you know, could smoke freely, uh, drink freely. Um, it's just a, just yeah. a different time. Yeah. Well, first of all, there were ashtrays uh, built into the <laughs> armrests of the airplanes, and to make matters even more pro-smoking, so to speak, the meal trays that you got had a complimentary pack of usually Marlboro cigarettes. A little four-pack of Marlboro cigarettes was served with you along with your meal tray. Now, about smoking, that is one of the objections people say today, uh, saying that the Golden Age you had the smoking and that was so bothersome. <clears throat> a little bit about that. As kids, we were born and raised in a smoking culture. Now, am I against smoking? You're darn right I am. I had a heart attack and, uh, at age 47 due to all the cigarettes, I believe, I smoked up to that time. But we were used at that time to second-hand smoke. We also had air vents overhead. So it wasn't as offensive back then as it is today if that makes sense. Absolutely. It shows how the culture's changed um, and, and how air, air flight has changed. I mean, you mentioned people don't dress up for, for flights anymore, right? Um, and, and I've heard people even joke that that's when society went downhill, when they started not dressing up on airplanes. And I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, it, it, it's interesting. Uh, they it, What happened was when they got the jets, uh, especially the jumbo jets, uh, the airlines found themselves over capacity. They had to do things to attract more flyers in order to make money. And the only way to do that was offer special fares. It started with family plan fares, if uh, those can remember uh, the old days. That's what the first discounted fares were, other than I think Delta and Eastern had uh, what they called night fares uh, on trips from the Northeast and the Midwest to select cities in Florida. <laughs> Today, in coach alone on domestic, I think there's like at least eight or ten different fares. Right. Just to give you an idea. So they had to appeal to everybody they can over the time. And here's an interesting thing about the, the history of airlines and, and their revenue. When I started with TWA, when you walked in first class, let's say, of a 707, Boeing 707, 
90% of the people sitting in there were paying the full first class fare. Today, it's just reversed. 10% of the people in first class are paying the full first class fare. The other 90% are on mileage travel. They're on upgrades because they're what they call elite travelers. They're on a combination of fares plus uh, mileage. And of course, we have airline employees either on business or uh, on personal travel. Right. I mean, you talk about how, and can you still this, do this today if you work for an airline? I mean, can you fly for free? Uh, some you can, uh, in a way you can, it's all space available unless you're a top executive or on (laughs) business. Uh, obviously you pay uh, the taxes of uh, foreign countries you fly to. Some airlines charge you extra to sit up front if you're lucky, if there are seats uh, up in uh, first class. Uh, you can also fly space available on other airlines uh, today Mm -hmm. on what they call Z fares or zone fares. Uh, I flew on Air France from uh, Paris, Charles de Gaulle, to Florence to meet my wife uh, on a Z fare uh, once. Okay. One of the, it's almost the 50th anniversary of one of the most harrowing incidents in the book, um, the crash of TW Flight 128, the crash at CVG um, on November 20th, 1967, so like very close to now, 50 years ago. How clear is that that day in your mind almost 50 years later? It was a night. And I can remember it as though it were last night. Uh, If I may digress a little bit, uh, this crash of Flight 128, uh, it was preceded by two other crashes. Uh, I seem to have a gruesome affinity, uh, if you will, to be in the vicinity of air crashes. Uh, As you noted in the book, uh, I was also in Boston when one went down, New York when one went down right near me. But getting back to the crash of 128, prior to that, 1965, a year earlier, I was working the Transworld counter (coughs) when I saw some hubbub at the American counter. And I, I thought this was rather unusual, people having an exciting walking back and forth, so on and so forth, because at this time of night, Flights aren't going out, they're usually coming in. And then I found out that American 383 crashed on the hill uh, short of the uh, runway coming in from LaGuardia. And when something like that happens, even though you're competitors, you really feel for the people that work for that airline because you know how heartbroken they are. And there were some survivors, and I actually saw some coming in, businessmen, with mud all over their shoes and the bottom of their trousers that wandered back to the airport. And I heard later on that nobody thought of going down to the hospital to be with any possible survivors. So that was 1965. And then a year later in November, I'm coming home from having a few drinks after work, and I stop at a my typical grocery store in Price Hill to get some cigarettes, and I walk in, and I I said, you have a pa- uh, pack of camels or two? And he says, yeah. He says, the guy behind the counter, the owner says, aren't you with TWA? I said, sure. He said, well, I'm sorry to hear about your crash. And I said, oh, my goodness. I, in, immediately in my mind, Cincinnati was not the place I would think it would happen because we were the third biggest carrier in Cincinnati. I figured it was in St. Louis, Kansas City, Los Angeles. I said, where was it? 
He's normal. You ran off the runway. I just came off the radio right here at the Greater Cincinnati Airport. And so I jumped in the car and I, I headed for the airport. And when I was driving down there, I understood that we ran over the uh, end of the runway. It was our nonstop flight to Los Angeles, which is a four-engine Boeing 7, 707. And uh, when I got toward the airport to the access road to go where the crash site was, there was a policeman there, an airport policeman. I showed him my ID, and he let me through. I knew what I was going to see was a plane that overshot the runway, but to actually turn the corner on this little one-lane access road in the middle of the night, and your headlights light up a tail of a 707 sitting on the road. It, it, it just was a, a shocking sight to see. And, and I, I got out of the car, and I, I, I talked to the, the three pilots. They didn't have their hats on, and I said, get in the car, and I'll take you over to the airport. And I took a moment to look inside the plane, and it was otherworldly because planes are supposed to be in the sky or at an airport gate, not laying on their belly. And I looked inside, and the crash truck lights were shining on the other side. So it, it gave this eerie appearance as you look in this empty aircraft with oxygen masks dangling down, magazines, seat cushions all over the place. And you think, this is just going off the runway, losing its landing gear. What must it be like if it really hit hard somewhere? So uh, that was my experience on that Monday night. Go back two weeks later, <laughs> I'm over at my girlfriend's house at the time. We just had dinner. I was tired because I was out with my friend Marty Zimmer, is his name in the book, the night before, and I was just beat. I turned on the television, almost collapsed on her sofa, and there was what they called news bulletin then. It wasn't breaking news then. And Al Shadokati came on and said they just received word that a large airliner had crashed at Greater Cincinnati Airport and there would be more news to follow. And my girlfriend was standing there. She was a reservations for uh, American. And she says, oh, my goodness. I said, well, it can't be us. We had our, our, our turn last week right. or two weeks ago. You guys, uh, last year, Delta's the biggest carrier. I wonder if it's them. So I said, well, I'll just call operations. I knew the unlisted number to call in operations and just confirm who it is and thinking it couldn't be us. And uh, Bob answered in operations, and he says, yeah, it's, it's our Flight 128 from L.A. It, it, uh, it, 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 it crashed short of the runway. So thinking back to past dates, I said, where are they taking any survivors? And he said, St. Elizabeth. So I said, if anybody asks where I'm at, I'm going to St. Elizabeth's to see what I can do there. So while <clears throat> driving to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, I'm getting accounts about the flight and the ambulances were rushing people there. I called St. Elizabeth's ahead of time and asked for a parking spot in a little office with a telephone. And uh, they were very nice to me when I got there. I met the lady who uh, showed me the office, and then she gave me some rather disconcerting news. I, she said, well, we've had two, I think, two loads of people come in uh, with the Hebron Life Squad. And she said, some are already passed. We have them in the morgue uh, here in the hospital. And uh, I said, well, when was the last group of survivors brought in? 
And she said, well, about 20 minutes ago. And then I knew that there was a terrible fatal crash because there should have been a stream of ambulances from Florence right. and El- Erlinger and gosh knows where. So uh, immediately I start getting calls from NBC News, CBS News in New York. And finally, a, a, a detective from Covington comes in and he says, uh, we have a stewardess in the operating room that wants to talk to a TWA representative. I said, well, that's me. So this was an experience for me because uh, even though I was a police cadet years before that, I'd been in emergency rooms but never in an actual operating room while an operation was taking place. So I was brought in, and I saw a lady, a young lady, uh, her hair all singed off, uh, pretty well singed off, a lot of scratches on her face, and they were, her leg was badly, a bad incision in her leg, and they were putting white powder on it. And I got closer, and she says, hi, Jim. And I thought, oh, my goodness. She says, it's me. It's, her real name is Ellie. She says, it's Ellie. I said, oh, Ellie. I'm so happy to, to to see that you 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 survived, and she said, he came in too too close. She said, I was in the back jump seat, and at first time we we had had a thud. I thought it was a hard landing, and she said, the second time, the whole fuselage opened up, and I could see trees overhead. Oh. And she said, I, I I called my parents from the uh, uh, farmhouse while we waited for the ambulance, and. She said, would you please call my roommate, gave me the uh, phone number, the, her neighbor across the hallway, uh, a lady to feed her cat for her. So I said, well, sure. I took the number, and then I, I left uh, out to a barrage of reporters. Uh, what did she say? What did she say? And <laughs> I can't tell her what she said about the crash, so right. I, I just sort of passed that off. And uh, there was a there was a cat to be fed in Kansas City, so I dismissed myself. The one other thing I can remember so clearly is a lady from the hospital, the representative had a yellow sweater on, and she, she said, can TWA reimburse me for my sweater? And I said, what do you mean? And she showed me a little burn mark. She said, I got this when I leaned over to talk to one of the survivors. He was still smoldering. Ugh. So, Awful. yeah, they, I, that was a night I'll never forget. I don't really know how to segue out of that story. <laughs> into into this question, so I'll just ask it. After you left the uh, airline industry, you returned to Cincinnati, um, where you've continued to live. Like, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen in this town since being born here uh, in the '40s? Oh my gosh, I, I I think I lived such great years here. I mean, um, uh, well, right around the corner here, 19 Garfield Place was called the Doctor's Building, and if you wanted to see a specialist back when I was a child. You either went to the doctor's building or to the crew tower. That, that was it for the specialists. Uh, today, my goodness, we have these satellite uh, offices from Harrison, Ohio to, to Anderson Township uh, where uh, a given specialist can walk around with his laptop and, and visit people on certain days of the week all over that area. Um, Swifton Center, first shopping center in Cincinnati. I remember what a big deal that was. Um, I, I rode the Mount Adams Incline before oh, they yeah. stopped it. Mom took me up there uh, uh, to, to see Rookwood Pottery and other <laughs> things. So, oh, my goodness, I, I, I have so many neat memories of so many things. We had the streetcars, by the way. There were three different kinds of streetcars. And I remember the most streamlined ones uh, ran the Kennedy Heights uh, line. So uh, 
we had a lot of fun too. I spent a good part of my childhood in Glendale, and we just had a good time hanging around, and we we did kid things that you don't see these days. I remember we used to soap windows of cars <laughs> a couple of days before Halloween. It was innocent fun. You could wash the soap off. Nobody got all upset about that. But you, you don't see any soaped up windows anymore. And then I guess I have mixed feelings about the gentrification I've seen occur between Central Parkway north to passing McMicken, I guess now. Uh, it's an exciting place to visit, restaurants, uh, so on and so forth. But the, those places have replaced people who were poor. And poverty doesn't go away. It just moves. So I have some mixed feelings about things like that. Uh, you were recently married at 73 years old for the first time. Am I correct? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I don't know what you were possibly thinking there. but And you'll see the point, my point here. Uh, the book is officially a memoir, but really, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's a tell-all. So my question is, what does your wife think about your, like, how do I put this, the bachelor lifestyle uh, and the women it included, many of whom are named in the book? Like, how did your wife respond to that? Well, first of all, I, I did take uh, the license, which is common in memoirs, to put fictitious names down right. uh, of, uh, of some people. Uh, as long it was, as it was before she met me. That's not a problem. <laughs> so I have to thank her for uh, being broad-minded. It's very respect. forgiving. <laughs> yes. Um, I like to say uh, uh, I was lucky to find my the woman I married. I was smart to marry her. Uh, she she is uh, she's a fantastic woman. She got married at an early age. Uh, after her children uh, grew. Uh, uh, she and her husband parted. Uh, I'm, I'm still, uh, I still get along, by the way, with her ex-husband. I have a, a instant family now of uh, three lovely stepdaughters and uh, five, uh, well, well, six uh, grandchildren, step-grandchildren. And uh, I, I've learned so many things uh, that I didn't have in bachelor life. We, we were at Blink of Cincinnati, and, and I saw this multicolored huge sign and some children uh, doing things with it and I said well what's that my wife said don't you know what a light bright is yeah no <laughs> no why would you so this uh, so this is a whole new world for me in in many respects but no to, to answer your question <laughs> as long as it was before her time that's okay then that's fair you chose uh, the self-publishing route for the book uh, how did you make that decision and what advice do you have for anyone considering self-publishing well, years ago, I tried publishing a book before uh, all the social media existed, and uh, I got my share of rejection slips. I was always caught in the conundrum that it would be nice to have an agent, but an agent wants you to have already published the book. Uh, a publisher wants you to have an agent, and you're caught in this endless loop, so to speak. So this time, I thought, I don't have time to go through all that. I'll try the self-publishing route. Uh, my wife happens to be great at event planning and marketing. Uh, she knows how to operate spreadsheets, how to get ISBN numbers, all the things you need to self-publish. And uh, she has really been a big help in 
and getting the book self-published and now in promoting it as well. If I had more time, I might have taken a different route. But I don't, at age 77, I don't have the time to, to diddle around sending letters out to publishers and, and right. agents. Well, with that being said, I mean, so you wrote this this book and you've mentioned you'd like to continue writing. So after this memoir, what are you, what are you looking to write about? Well, actually two things. Uh, I'm going to try and do two different writings, uh, possibly almost uh, alternating uh, at the same time. I wrote two scripts years ago, uh, found out how very hard it is to sell a script, especially the first time and especially if you don't live in Hollywood and you have no contacts. So right now I've, uh, I've just recently bought uh, Final Draft uh, Edition 10, the professional script writing software that uh, most uh, professional script writers use. I'm writing a pilot for a miniseries based on my book, Up, Up, and Astray. Uh, will it sell? Who knows, but it, it, uh, it's cheap to sit there at a computer and write, and it keeps me out of trouble. So that's one thing I'll do. And the other is to take up where the book leaves off after I come back to Cincinnati, what happens. I could see it working as a TV show because I, I just got this Mad Men vibe as I read it, you know, which is all about advertising executives in the, I think it's in the 60s, right? And they, they're just kind of like... They're womanizing and drinking and smoking and like it's a lot of like internal politics and whatnot. And I could see, you know, I, I, I really get that vibe from your book. So I could see it working in that in that medium. I, I think that it could. Yes. Uh, either as a miniseries or some have said uh, it might just continue on like a two and a half men kind of deal, only uh, the Charlie Sheen character is not a jingle writer. He works for an international airline. There you go. There you go. So for uh, my final question, which is always my final question, we're going to play dinner party. So you get to invite one writer, one rocker, like any sort of musician, one actor or actress, and one miscellaneous person of your choice, but they all must be alive. So, who are you inviting and why? Well, first of all, great minds think alike. I have often used that as a conversation starter. It's a great one, right? It's a great conversation starter. Only I allowed them to bring in the dead as well. <laughs> <laughs> but they couldn't bring in relatives. Uh, well, okay. Uh, first of all, as far as writers are concerned, most of the writers that I have high regard for have are dead, Uh Dreiser, Theodore Dreiser, probably being my favorite one. But on present day writers, I'm more of a nonfiction reader than than fiction. So I'm going to say Tom Brokaw. He wrote a memoir and he wrote yes. the, the Best Generation. Uh, I've had him on a flight once. Uh, we didn't chat long because I, I was busy doing other things. But uh, we're the same age. And uh, I see him on television being interviewed and, and he's a... He's a stable man. I, I, I have a lot of respect for him. Stable man. That's a good way to put it. He still has that very calming influence, to, I feel, like when I hear him on the radio. Okay, so that's your writer. Musician? Rocker would be Rod Stewart. Okay, there yeah. you go. Uh, great songs. Uh, I that Do you think I'm sexy? Once you get it in your mind, you can't get it out. Right. But more so for the dinner party, I'd like to ask him, about his personal life, because I understand among some of the women he, he, he dated or was married to, 
one broke his heart. And for a guy who can have all these groupies hanging around him and that, it's interesting to, to see that there's some humanity there that somebody got to him and really hurt him. Sure. Uh, one actor or actress? Oh, Leonard DiCaprio. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, first of all, his, his talent uh, to to do all the different uh, movies he, he's done and how he fit into the part so well, For starting with uh, Catch Me If You Can, I love that, which uh, was sort of the Pan Am uh, version of uh, so much of mine as much sometimes my book is is described as between catch me if you can and the wolf of wall street so uh, i but the scene uh in the wolf of wall street by the way where he is crawling on his stomach out to his car if you remember that right (laughs) i just thought that was not only hilarious but a fantastic bit of acting okay and then you get one uh, miscellaneous person to invite. Okay, I don't know the person's name. Oh. It will be a male or female doctor okay. who has served at least two years in Doctors Without Borders. Oh. Why are you making that choice? I have so much admiration for these people that will work in combat zones. And as we know, uh, some of them were killed in a bombing uh, in Syria. Um, they expose themselves to so much danger there. They expose themselves to communicable diseases, which can be fatal or crippling, for which there is no known uh, vaccinations yet. And, and I, I noticed one uh, tr- a bus pulling up when I was in Antigua, Guatemala, of Doctors Without Borders. And uh, as they were getting out at the hotel, I noticed they were surrounded by... Uh, Guatemalan uh, army personnel heavily armed and I I wondered what was going on and I thought oh they're also subjected to armed robbery because they have to travel with a certain uh, supply of narcotics for the operations that they they perform so I I would like to hear some of the experiences from that person those are fantastic answers that's a good dinner party all right so as we wrap all this up I'd like to give you the final word well I, I guess my final, excuse me if I can give a little advice maybe to future sure. writers, um, have a sense of humor. And in this day of, uh, of mass media, social media being so common, uh, something I, I'm glad I did to to make my book hopefully more interesting is I made conversation with everyday people, whether they're airport gate agents or a a hotel staff uh, where you check in, uh, a courtesy car driver, (laughs) one courtesy car driver that drove me from uh, Heathrow Airport to my hotel became a very exciting uh, person in the book, very interesting person. Some of your best sources for writing about people are some of the more routine people that you sometimes take for granted. So chat it up, as they say over in England, with some of the people and put the put the uh, smartphone in your pocket or purse for a couple of minutes and then pull it out and go back to your Facebook. <laughs> That's a great way to wrap it all up. Jim Spaeth's Up, Up, and Astray is available online and at branches of the Cincinnati Public Library. It's a very fun read uh, and, and very entertaining. It's a great look back on a time we just don't see anymore. 
Jim blogs at retiredtwaguy.com, and he can be found on Twitter at J.M. Spath. That's S-P-A-E-T-H. Until next time, this is the Cincinnati Public Library's writer-in-residence, Kurt Dynan, for Inside the Writer's Head. Inside the Writer's Head podcast is produced by the Public Library of Cincinnati and Hamilton County. It was recorded in the library's makerspace. Use the makerspace yourself at the main library or select branch locations. Special thanks to the Library Foundation for funding the Writer-in-Residence program. Learn more and read the Inside the Writer's Head blog on our website, cincinnatilibrary.org. Subscribe to this podcast so you do not miss future episodes and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.